Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. It was just over a month ago when the federal government was staring at the possibility of a shutdown. Well, little seemingly has changed in the ensuing four weeks. Other than that, the House of Representatives has a new speaker in Mike Johnson from Louisiana, and the full chamber has settled on its budget numbers for fiscal 2024 which started back on October 1st. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. While most national parks likely will close if there is a government shutdown on November 17th, what is more pressing for the National Park Service is what budget numbers Congress will settle on for the current fiscal year and whether President Biden will go along with them. Our guests today are John Garter, the Senior Director of Budget and Appropriations at the National Parks Conservation Association, and Mike Murray, a longtime National Park Service employee and superintendent who now serves as chair of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks. We'll be back in a minute with John and Mike to discuss the current situation facing the Park Service and the park system. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Adventure awaits. Explore the beauty of our national parks with Explorer Maps. Whether you're captivated by the breathtaking landscapes of Yellowstone or the wild shores of Acadia, Explorer Maps has a perfect map to connect you to your favorite place. Visit ExploreMaps.com to find your next adventure. Interior Federal Credit Union is pleased to introduce our upcoming seven-month certificate special set to launch on November 1st, 2023. This limited time offer features a competitive 5.75% annual percentage yield. It's a great way to make your savings work harder for you. Please note that this special rate is available for new funds only. If you've been exploring options to grow your savings, remember to mark November 1st on your calendar. We're here to help you achieve your financial goals. Apply for membership at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NCUA. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Welcome back to The Traveler, gentlemen. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. So, first question out of the chutes, as it were. Um, are we going to see a shutdown on November 17th at midnight, or is there going to be uh, another continuing resolution to get us uh, a few more months down the road? Yeah, it's a good question, Kurt. I, I don't know if anyone knows the answer to that, and including the House majority. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult to read the tea leaves, and I gave up prognosticating after the last shutdown that, that didn't happen within the waning hours of the expiration of the last continuing resolution. The uh, majority doesn't 
currently appear to have a plan, nothing that's public. There was a um, meeting uh, that was described to be uh, maybe not productive by those who were there. Um, the speaker says he has a plan. Nothing has been presented yet. Um, hopefully we'll see something this week and hopefully it will be something that is palatable, not just to a majority of folks in the house, as well as, you know, parks advocates and other Americans who care a lot about um, keeping the government open, but also the Senate and the White House. A plan's been floated to have a ladder type of arrangement that would involve different expiration dates for different parts of the government. I don't know if anything like that's ever been proposed. It, uh, was received poorly on the Hill by folks in both parties and in, including appropriators. I think that's not, that doesn't appear to be a tenable plan and would cause a lot of complications. That's all a long way of saying it's anyone's guess, Kurt. Mike, like I said, you, you had a long career with the park service. Um, certainly the, um, Budgetary upheavals are, uh, I think, uh, a recent phenomenon. Um, what does this yo-yoing of, of budget numbers and budgets do to the, the, the park superintendents, the park staffs? It, it does several things. One, it's demoralizing because you don't have any certainty about what money you have to spend, particularly on staffing for the next year. Um, looking back at Secretary's letter to ranking member on House Appropriations Committee back in May or March, sorry, just pull some data from there. Uh, and, and this fits with my experience. Park budgets and the Park Service overall budget, 55 to 60% is spent on staff. So if you lose even a small percentage of money, you have a superintendent has very limited options of how to make up the difference. And it usually homes in on cutting seasonal staffing because there's more flexibility to make adjustments there than with permanent staffing. Permanent staffing are of encumbered position. That money's kind of committed. If you have a vacant permanent position and you're trying to make up a budget deficit or shortfall, you may lapse the permanent position for longer. That's one way to make it up, et cetera. But the numbers being talked about in the recent House Appropriations Bill are unrealistic. I'm not a politician. Uh, it's hard to take the numbers seriously. Uh, they are so far removed from the agreement between the administration reached with Congress uh, earlier this year for spending. So in my mind, the numbers appear to just be a messaging strategy, you know, hardball negotiations, et cetera. Uh, I would say that any significant cut in the Park Service budget would be serious because you have to look at it in the context of the last 10 years. Park visitations increased by, I believe, 13 percent between 2012 and 2022. Park Service staffing is reduced by 10 percent. So if they cut the budget and let's say the Park Service loses another thousand positions, that's on top of a significant reduction over the last 10 years. So that compounds the difficulties that parks will face. It's undeniable that park visitation is increasing, but uh, park staffing 
is going to be an extreme challenge for park operations. Superintendents have limited options for making up a 5 or 10% reduction in their budgets. John, what, what are the numbers that you've seen, um, both from what the House passed out the other day and the, the Senate numbers, if we have Senate numbers? Yeah, sure. It was very disappointing that that House bill passed because it, it's so damaging. 12.5% cut to the National Park Service. A couple highlights in there that includes a more than a 50% cut to line item construction, which would prevent uh, quite a number of construction projects from happening, uh, further contributing to the deferred maintenance backlog, of course, which has gotten bipartisan support in Congress. So that would be a, a huge disappointment. And then uh, on the alarming end is a 9% cut to park operations that would lead to furloughing hundreds, if not a thousand staff. You know, the challenges that Mike has described, minimal seasonal hiring during the busy season, um, likely reduced hours or closed facilities, which we saw under a five or 6% cut during the sequester 10 years ago. So we've seen at a lower level what, what that kind of a, uh, an unrealistic, as Mike put it, what unrealistic cut looks like. The Senate bill, which, um, you know, unfortunately this fiscal year, that's, that's our high mark. They've done their best with a, an austere allocation to write a bill that's good for parks and the other things that they need to cover. But they have a lot of obligations for other things like tribal support and wildfires. And so there's only so much they have to work with. Um, the Park Service budget, uh, the operating budget is somewhere in the neighborhood of a $15 million increase. But that doesn't cover fixed costs, primarily um, a 5%, 5.2% federal pay raise that's slated to go through. It's long overdue for park staff who are increasingly having trouble affording housing and making ends meet like so many Americans, but that's going to have to come from somewhere. And so if they don't find another way to cover that, it's going to mean maybe somewhere in the order of a few dozen less park service staff. They've weathered, you know, absorbing fixed costs before. I mean, it happens most of the time. It's not ideal, but it's something that they can weather. Now, when you so, said when you said a few dozen fewer park staff, you're talking per park, right? No, no. Overall, it would be a reduction of somewhere in the neighborhood of a a few dozen FTEs. You know, the the measurement of the full time equivalent through the park service. I mean, they'd have to absorb somewhere around a hundred million dollars. I, I haven't done the math, but it's you know, it's it's giving a haircut here and there. But I, but I thought. With this budget, it'd be like a thousand fewer Park Service employees. I must be missing something. No, to, to be, I'm I'm talking about the Senate bill. Oh, okay, so, okay. Yeah, the, the the Senate bill is an austere one. It would lead to, you know, a modest loss of of some staff through attrition, just because they'd have to absorb the pay raise. But the Park Service could weather it, versus the House bill that would just be cutting with an axe. And the rationale is just, you know, we've got to get the the country's um, budget numbers more reasonable to, to balance as opposed to this deficit spending? That's a great question. So so there was the bipartisan budget deal this past summer, right? And that uh, was something that a lot of people weren't happy with. It created a top line uh, spending ceiling. The 
Interior and Environment Appropriations Subcommittee was given their austere slice, and that's what they had to work with. Um, that's what you get with a bipartisan budget deal. It, it, it doesn't provide the investments that are needed for parks or others, but the intention there was to meet in the middle. And so as, as we head towards some kind of, as Congress heads towards some kind of conference, meeting in the middle is not an option because that's somewhere around the 5% cut I described that was so damaging 10 years ago. It, it, it's gotta be what already was meeting in the middle, which was abiding by the budget deal and, and the Senate bill. And it really shouldn't be any lower than that. Mike, I'm curious, um, your last position with the Park Service was superintendent of Cape Hatteras National Seashore. Where would you begin to cut if you were handed a budget like this? Uh, well, like I said before, a superintendent, the most flexible part of a park budget, and by flexibility, I mean it's not pre-committed, is in seasonal staffing. It's a relatively small part of the budget, but it's between seasonal staffing and some supplies and materials purchasing. You know, every district of every division needs supplies and materials for something, but- But that don't account for so much. Right, it's not that big a part of the budget, but it's the area where there's the most, I keep wanting to use the word flexibility, that is not totally committed in advance. Like your funding for permanent staffing Unless you have a vacancy in a permanent position, that money's committed. You can't reduce the amount of time the position works without there being an official uh, reduction in staff initiative. So first place superintendents have to look because there's no other option really is discretionary programs, supplies and materials, and seasonal staffing. Because seasonal staffing, you can just hire fewer people and then you save some money. But do you, do you also, I would assume you'd have to get into uh, cuts that impact the visitor experience, no? I mean, do you, do you close campgrounds? Do you, do you um, stop the, the lighthouse tours? You know, there's different strategies. I've worked for superintendents who I thought took bold steps. And when they had to absorb significant budget cuts, they closed something, like they closed one of the 10 campgrounds at Yellowstone or whatever park I happened to be in, so that the effect of the budget shortfall was visible to the public. You also have a lot of superintendents that do the death by a thousand cuts, so they whittle away here and there. Sort of try to keep everything open, but maybe slightly reduced hours or with more volunteer staffing than paid staffing or whatever. And on the surface, it may seem like the park is getting by with less money, but there's usually some deterioration in conditions, either less maintenance, fewer programs, whatever it may be. So personally, I think the better move for management is if they have to absorb a 10% cut, is close something. Yeah, and I'm make wondering- it, Make it visible. Yeah, but both you gentlemen and your organizations are in tight communications, I would think, with uh, a lot of superintendents across the country. Without naming superintendents or parks, do you have a sense that there are some superintendents out there who would 
make such a move to to show the impact to the general public of these budget cuts? I have no specific information to confirm that, uh, just based on my years of experience. And I'm sure there's some superintendents that would strongly consider it, and then others that may not. And then the question would be, would they be allowed to close something? Um, this is a little bit off topic. We averted the shutdown uh, back on October 1st. Our, our group did a thorough analysis of the Park Service shutdown contingency plan, uh, which was advertised, you know, via the Department of Interior press release, is saying the majority of parks would be closed to the public. But the reality was most parks would have remained open with reduced staffing. Right. The distinction is that facilities and services that are typically closed at night so the visitor center, park headquarters, they would be closed fully during the shutdown. Facilities open at night, lodging, campgrounds, roads, et cetera, would have remained open. So we feel like the plan was clear and that a lot would be left open. So we feel like it was misleading messaging to say the majority of parks would be closed. Right, right. So that tells me that was directed from above and maybe even above the park service. Um, so if parks had reduced budgets by 10% and some superintendents wanted to close campground to save money, I don't know if they'd be allowed to do it. Now, decades ago, um, back in the last century, when Mike Finley was a superintendent at Yosemite National Park, I, I can't remember the exact situation Um but he either threatened to close the entrance gates to Yosemite Valley, or he actually did, to make a point. Is there a Mike Finley out there, John? Have you, are you aware of? Uh, you know, we haven't we haven't really uh, gone there in full force on um, speculating in some detail what a deep budget cut would look like at parks uh, because there. Are, nowhere near close to a budget deal but we we have seen what this has looked like and um you know a cut this deep would would as deep as is proposed in the house would lead to some very painful decisions whether they're you know it's trying to make a point or whether it's just making ends meet or or some of both it it has a deep impact on visitors when when it's that deep a cut or a shutdown and i do want to be clear as well because we've been talking about impacts to visitors both from a shutdown scenario and from deep cuts but that's only one part of the park services mission right and so what often gets lost in the mix is the important resource work and maintenance work and all of those other things that visitors don't necessarily see that's really important to the park service so park planning, both uh, the, the science that's needed for climate change, visitor use management planning, which is increasingly important at so many parks, all of that work, um, the, the uh, maintenance uh, seizes or is, is uh, compromised, um, and, and other wildlife management and data that's being collected, all of that gets compromised by deep budget cuts or by government shutdowns. And uh, that is not something that 
people would support you know people don't just love visiting their parks they love the existence value they love that these are places that that protect our heritage this is Kurt Repencheck. We're talking today with uh, Mike Murray from the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks and John Garter, the uh, Budget and Appropriations Director at the National Parks Conservation Association. We're talking about the prospects of both a possible government shutdown on November 17th, as well as the longer-term impacts of uh, budget numbers working through Congress. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Listener and reader support make the National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation at nationalparkstraveler.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. So, Mike and John, I'm curious. Um, we just saw um, an off-year election where Democrats racked up some I- impressive victories, if you will. We're watching from the sidelines here, but I'm just wondering if those election results will have any impact on Republicans in the House of uh, Representatives. Well, they say, boy, we better not irritate the general public too much. Otherwise, we're all going to lose our jobs next year or the Democrats are going to take both chambers. I don't have a crystal ball and I would hesitate to guess how the outcome may affect sort of the points of view of Republicans in the House. There seem to be other issues motivating them to do what they're doing. So I, 
I don't know. I worked in law enforcement half my career, and I learned never to forecast what a judge would determine in a court case. <laughs> and so now my advocacy second career, I guess, I have to say I've learned not to predict what, you know, the political outcome of something, because a lot of times it's not rational in my mind. It doesn't seem to make common sense. So yeah. I, I hesitate to guess. Yeah. Well, I'm a, a long-term news junkie. I mean, I've been in professional journalism for 40 plus years and, and covered a numerous numerous elections over the years with the associated press and um you know watching what's coming out of washington these days i know there are um moderate republicans in the house who are already concerned about the budget numbers and i'm just um have to think that um the election results um which were very surprising um in in several states didn't catch their attention now whether that will lead to revisiting some of these um, these budgets. I don't know if they'll be more amenable to um, reaching a compromise with the Senate remains to be seen because if they continue their current um, position, boy, I don't know if we'll get a, a CR or not, let alone a, a finalized budget for a fiscal year. There are definitely reasons to be pessimistic. Or maybe optimistic. Um, so I'm wondering... What does the future of the park service and the park system look like under the sort of budget scenario that we're, we're seeing play out? I mean, you know, as, as you mentioned, Mike, visitation is only increasing. Um, National Park Service staffing is going the opposite way. Um, there's always interest in adding new parks to the, the park system. We've seen surveys that attrition at the National Park Service is up. Something's going to break along the way, no? I think there are definitely signs of stress to the system. You look at employee morale. Employee, Park Service employees are on the front line of providing visitor services. So reduced staffing and increased visitation puts more pressure on them to, you know, keep up the pace and keep up the work. Personally, I feel like the American public is generally supportive of the national park system. I don't know that they fully appreciate and understand the incredible value that parks provide environmentally, culturally, historically. And if you want to look at numbers at generating visitor spending, I just took a look before you know, getting on the podcast today at the uh, Park Service Visitor Spending Effects website, 2022. Um, I have to look at my notes wherever they are here. Um, there was $23.9 billion in visitor spending across the park system, which equaled $50.3 billion in total economic output. So compare that to the Park Service budget that fiscal year, well over $3.4 million. For every dollar invested in the park system, it returned $15 in economic benefit for local communities. So there are many reasons why people, I think, love their parks, appreciate their parks, but I don't know if there's been enough to kind of activate people to speak out in support of parks. Um, I think they take parks for granted in a way. And so, uh, you know, I think one job of advocacy groups is to help the general public understand 
if and when parks are threatened, either by action or inaction in Congress on budgets or environmentally or climate change or whatever it may be. Um, I think the American public could and would rise to the occasion to be more vocally supportive of parks if they understood the threats better. I don't have uh, such a pessimistic view, Kurt. I, I remain hopeful um, in part for uh, some of the reasons Mike has mentioned. You know, parks are more popular than ever. They've bounced back from uh, the reduction in visitation we saw during the pandemic. Visitor spending is at an all-time high. Uh, the economic benefits of parks are very clear at communities throughout the country and nationally as we all bring it to the attention of lawmakers. Um, the Harvard University did some research on the existence value of parks that I've mentioned, and there's considerable bipartisan support for funding our parks. The problem is they get lost in the mix, right? And these numbers are relatively small. It's a tiny slice of the federal budget, less than one fifteenth of one percent. Uh, any, you know, budgetary challenges we may have are not. You know, the park service is is not the problem. And to the contrary, it's an investment clearly that's that's worth making. You know, the smaller parks you mentioned, their their funding is a, a very small slice, even all added together compared to the larger park service budget. You know, these are generally very small sites. And I I, I submit that they only make parks more relevant uh, and resonating with the American people. Uh, the more places to enjoy, they, um, you know, they interpret uh, different parts of our history. And so I remain hopeful that, you know, with the public, uh, the, the, the public interest, the, you know, the public outcry that Mike spoke to, that we um, can get through to lawmakers that, that they need to do better than they have been doing. Let me ask you this about um, the funding situation with the Park Service and the parks specifically. In recent years, the topic of non-core lodging has cropped up. And it started in Yellowstone National Park, I think, back in maybe 2018. And by non-core lodging, it is lodging units that the park lets a concessionaire price at whatever the market will bear. Um, at Yellowstone, I think it's, um, I don't know if it's 50% of the room, um, but it's a sizable amount. You know, you're being asked to pay three, 300 or more dollars a night to stay in Yellowstone. Um, I see in its latest prospectus for lodging concessionaires at Zion National Park, they're proposing um, to allow the concessionaire to charge what the market will bear for the... Um, the cabins outside the, the lodge there. Um, and I've been told that it's now up to national park superintendents whether or not they want to see more non-core lodging. And I'm just wondering, is that is that a result of the, the squeeze on the, the park budgets? Because if concessionaires are allowed to charge more, I, I imagine that the parks are allowed to take more from that, um, that higher fee. Any ideas about, you know, cause and effect in, in that term? I mean, in the case of Yellowstone, um, Zantara had a 20-year contract. I forget when they signed it, but when they did sign it, and it wasn't 20 years ago, it was only about maybe 10 years ago, 
they were happy with the terms. And then in 2018, we're going to allow the concessionaire to charge whatever the market will bear. So something changed there. Was it was it higher cost for the concessionaire? I don't know. But is this the kind of thing that um, the, the American public should brace itself for, for higher lodging rates, for higher entrance fees, um, higher program costs, as the Park Service tries to manage what little money it has coming in? It's a good, it's a good question. Um, it's a complicated answer, and I'm not sure I know enough of the details about the concessions, lodging pricing. It's uh, currently going on to, to comment specifically about that. Uh, from my experience, probably at least in the 90, 1990s moving forward, there's always been stress on parks by inadequate budgets, you know, not sufficient to fund the key operations they need to operate the park to an acceptable level. Uh, we went through a process, I believe in the 90s, called core operations. You're supposed to identify your primary fundamental services and staffing that you need to provide to maintain the park at an acceptable level. And that was sort of the basis. You know, it was a the fad of the, the decade, I guess. <laughs> guess. I'm not sure how it panned out. But around that time, there started to be emphasis on superintendents becoming more entrepreneurial, which in my mind was kind of a paradoxical term. But it was, there was encouragement to create a fence group to help raise extra money to help you staff the visitor center. There was encouragement to look at your fees, your recreation fees, entrance fees, camping fees, permit fees, to see if you could supplement your park uh, budget with that money. I think the concessions thing is probably a little different than that. Um, I worked at Yellowstone, but in the 90s, and I can say that there's an incredible high value historic infrastructure in the lodges there and a good portion of the income, you know, the park share of the income goes toward maintaining those facilities. And so I don't know if that play has played into raising the rates or if it's more just a change in philosophy to become more market-based rather than keep rates lower. Um, I think it's unfortunate. I think it's important for parks to have affordable lodging for average American families making the trip to visit, particularly these remote parks where there's limited opportunities nearby, you know, in local communities, et cetera. So, I, you know, I can't really comment too specifically about the lodging rates, but I, I think back to your original question, there is stress from chronic limited funding in order to get adequate staffing that really has either encourage or force superintendents to look at alternative sources of money, foundations, friends groups, raising fees, you name it. It all adds a few extra seasonal staffs during the peak season or help supplement the staffing that they can't afford based on their appropriations. The whole thing with, with market rates befuddles me because a national park has a limited amount of housing for the public to stay in. And they're not going to impact 
the gateway towns. There's just not enough housing inside a national park to adversely impact lodging in a gateway town. And so I don't fully understand the purpose of we're going to set our lodging rates inside the park to match those outside the park. I mean, just look at Grand Teton in Yellowstone or Grand Teton specifically. I mean, if you've ever been to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, I mean, the hotels that exist there, the Airbnbs that exist there, the, the private guest ranches that exist there, the rates are phenomenal. So why should lodging inside Grand Teton have to equal those rates? I, I just don't understand that. This is just an observation. Uh, having worked in Yellowstone, Yosemite, I've been to Grand Canyon a few times, didn't work there, but the earliest parks with the big historic luxury hotels were originally constructed for rich people that could afford sure. to take the train from the east to go visit the park. Sure. So there is some long-standing precedent for having high-quality, relatively expensive accommodations in parks. On the other hand, <laughs> um, you know, I think it's my personal values. I think it's the values of our nation too that there should be affordable accommodations as well, so that the average families can afford to visit their national parks, particularly the once in a lifetime parks like Yellowstone and Grand Canyon and Yosemite. So there should be, you know, if there are a few luxury hotels and Old Faithful Inn comes to mind or the Awani and Yosemite Valley. Um, I mean, I never could afford to stay there when I worked there. Um, and luckily, I didn't need to stay there. But um, there should also be basic hotel rooms or basic cabins that an average family could afford to stay in for a few nights. No, I, I fully agree with you there. Um, you have to have a mix of, of lodging for sure. At the same time, I mean, I was in Grand Teton back in August, and I loved the Coulter Bay area. Um, I like the historic feel you have there. But you're staying in a cabin that's basically turned into a duplex or maybe a quad. There's plywood on the walls. There's a, a, a bathroom that you might have trouble changing your mind. It's so small. The, the carpentry is not the best. And you're paying almost $300 a night for that. And if that's the, the comparables that they're coming up with, I think something is off kilter there. And, and I've talked to Chip Jenkins about that at the superintendent of Grand Teton, and they're supposed to be coming out with um, um, some scoping documents on what to do with the, the Colter Bay area. They want to re-envision it, which is great. And, you know, my two cents is I think they have to be careful with the lodging rates there because you are going to price out people. And I don't, I don't know exactly what the answer is. What about the Park Service running the lodges? Is that feasible, Mike? Oof. From the perspective of the large parks with multiple locations, et cetera, I think it'd be very difficult to transition. I mean, honestly, it's difficult to transition between large concession contracts there's often requirement to buy out possessory interest and I mean, really expensive, complicated things to the point that the Park Service has to have concessions management specialists, you know, well-trained professionals that understand the details of these contracts and know how to 
monitor and implement them. So I, I think it'd be very difficult to transition, you know, on a smaller scale, some smaller park that's got some campgrounds maybe operated by a local contractor. You know, it, it may be possible in a few situations for the park to assume management of smaller facilities in a few places, but the, the big parks with the big contracts, it'd be very difficult to change. John, is this something that is on NPCA's radar? I mean, I don't frequently hear NPCA talking about entrance fees or, or lodging rates or, um, you know, the visitor experience um, in, in that term. Is that just something you guys don't deal with? We haven't been looking at uh, the specific concession contracts for lodging or that issue, uh, but we do engage on concessions on occasion. Uh, we're we're very invested in fees. Uh, we we feel strongly that we want parks to be affordable for the Americans who own them, uh, as a as a general principle. There are some areas where there's room for some increases in fees where the park service hasn't kept up with um, the consumer price index. You know, just inflation and everything costing more. Uh, sometimes they'll go for quite some time before they increase their fees when they provide opportunities for public comment and those fee increases are uh, reasonable. It does provide an opportunity for uh, some additional deferred maintenance, you know, a few more seasonals, as Mike said, it it certainly helps. Um, the, the senior fee was was increased and now it's it's $80 for a lifetime pass the same as in America the beautiful pass um it's still you know quite the deal but you know uh huge increases in visitor fees as was proposed under former secretary Zinke uh, that kind of thing should really be a non-starter you know I think your your point is families should be able to uh, afford these parks and this is not Disneyland. This is not the private sector where, you know, parks can be such entrepreneurs that they're, uh, you know, gathering enough enough funding that they can make ends meet. It's fundamentally a federal responsibility. That's how they were designed. Congress made a commitment over 100 years ago that they were going to protect and take care of these places and serve visitors. And that's it's their obligation, you know, legal and ethical obligation to do that. Definitely interesting times that we're going through, and it's going to be interesting to see how Congress comes down if they're able to um, become one of a like mind and move forward with this. Thank you so much for your time today, gentlemen. It's been a, a wonderful conversation, and uh, we'll look forward to see what happens down the road. Thank you, Kurt. That's our show for this week. We hope you found it interesting. Next week, we're literally going to the birds and the sea turtles. We're going to check in with the staff at Cape Hatteras National Seashore to see how piping plovers and sea turtles did with their nesting there this year. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. 
This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.